Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. When Keith Harper was confirmed as President Obama's ambassador to the Human Rights Council, he became the first ever American Indian to achieve the rank of ambassador. The longtime attorney for Native American rights soon put his knowledge of tribal culture to use in Geneva, where he represented the United States on the top UN human rights body. Keith is a Cherokee Indian. He was born in San Francisco and from an early age was animated by a civil rights movement known as, quote, Red Power. After law school, he represented a number of Native Americans and Native American causes, and this culminated in a billion-dollar class-action lawsuit against the federal government that he successfully litigated. I just want to thank Keith for being so open and honest about some of his personal experiences being an underrepresented minority, often in very elite circles, and how that affected him personally and professionally and as a diplomat. We spend the first few minutes of this conversation discussing the work of the Human Rights Council, so let me give you a little bit of a background on it. So this is a 47-member body in which each member state is elected by the entire UN membership to three-year terms. Now, one of its flaws that critics sometimes point to is that some of the members of the council have pretty lousy human rights records themselves, and this, frankly, is undoubtedly true. But the reason they get elected to the council is because its membership is apportioned based on a UN principle known as equitable geographic representation. This means that a certain number of seats are reserved for a certain number of countries in each region. Now, there are more African countries than there are Western European countries, so it stands to reason that Africa gets more seats than Western Europe. But the problem arises when regions negotiate amongst themselves to nominate an equal number of candidates as there are seats so you get uncompetitive elections that result in countries like Burundi to get a seat. Now, this is not to pick on Africa. Europe also oftentimes engages in uncompetitive elections. But despite this key flaw, Keith makes a compelling argument as to why the United States should nonetheless stay engaged. And whether the United States will remain a member of the council is very much in question right now by the Trump administration. So at the top of this interview, Keith weighs in on that debate and also gives some pretty good and tangible examples of how U.S. engagement at the Council has resulted in meaningful progress on human rights in certain places and on certain ideas around the world. Before we begin, I do want to encourage you to apply to the Humanity in Action Fellowship Program. If you are listening to the podcast and you are a university student or a recent grad, then you are the ideal target audience for this funded fellowship. Just go to the website, click on the link to Humanity in Action Fellowship Program, and you'll learn more. So strongly encourage you. I am a senior fellow. I did this fellowship. It changed my life, and it will change yours. All right, now here is my conversation with Ambassador Keith Harper. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the on the show here. Um, thanks for being a my, listener. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've enjoyed it uh, uh, both when I was serving, and uh, uh, and certainly there's a lot of topical uh, uh, topics that you've you've covered. Uh, I'm sure so, I've covered um, the Human Rights Council before. It's one of my it's one of my go to uh, issues, often too undercovered. So I, I appreciate having a conversation about it. Well, it's an interesting institution with some important flaws, but I think uh, also uh, an institution that can be a force for good. So it's a very complicated uh, institution. You know, with respect to the Trump administration, my kind of sense, and I don't have any particular insights or uh, insider information, but my sense is, is that um, they're unlikely to stay on the Human Rights Council. Uh, I think that uh, Ambassador Haley's speech in uh, in June was a bit of a har- harbinger for uh, ultimate withdrawal. And it was just like uh, in June, she visited the Human Rights Council in Geneva, gave a speech afterwards to a group of NGOs and activists and seemed to suggest and, and lay out a marker for whether or not the U.S. would stay in and probably to you and, and to me as well, seem to suggest that the U.S. would exit. That's that's correct. I mean, that, that's how I read it, because um, she put on the table during her various interventions, speeches, uh, a, a couple of requirements for continuing U.S. engagement um, that are, in my judgment, unattainable in the near term. Uh, as, as you know, as you probably know from my uh, interventions throughout my tenure, you know, I fundamentally disagree with this item seven uh, of the council's agenda for your listeners. Item seven is the standalone item number for just for Israel, just for criticism of Israel. No other country in the world has a standalone agenda item. And the United States position is a principled one that we won't consider any resolution and we won't participate under item seven. And so, uh, she has asked for the elimination of item seven, which I would love to see, but, in order to eliminate it, you would need to get agreement from a number of governments uh, uh, who don't want us at the council. So it's a bit like holding a gun to your own head and saying, with 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 an adversary and saying, if you don't if you don't if you don't do what I ask, you know, I'm going to pull the trigger. And they're like, uh, great, go for it. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. So we I get mean, to it, keep it, our item agenda seven, and you don't get to be in the council. Exactly, and we get to control the agenda. Uh, in, a, in a manner similar to how the agenda was controlled um, by what's called the like-minded group, which tends to be a number of countries with not particularly good human rights records, some abysmal human rights records like China, uh, control the agenda of the council with, with the United States uh, not not there. And that's what happened in the early days of the council when the Bush administration decided not to engage in the council. Uh, and we had done a lot of work uh, over uh, uh, seven 
uh, seven-year period to change that dynamic, and I think we're successful in significant ways. And and we should say that the Human Rights Council was created in 2005 as a successor to this old discredited Human Rights Commission or Commission on Human Rights, and it was a leaner body, a more effective body, but the... um, the the rules that made up its composition did not meet certain criteria that the Bush administration felt necessary, so they stayed out of, of the Human Rights Council. But very quickly, very soon after President Obama took office, he opted to uh, positively engage the the security the the Human Rights Council, and the U.S. won a seat on the council. Um, and now I think the U.S. term ends in twenty nineteen. Uh, is is the likely outcome uh, for the Trump administration that the U.S. simply doesn't run for re-election, or do you think they'll exit before then? I don't know the answer to that, um, but I but 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 my instincts are telling me that they're setting the groundwork for an earlier exit than uh, serving their entire term. That her speech, if if it were that. Um, if they were going to serve their three years, I think they should have given a different speech uh, uh, in in June. And and the interesting thing is that because there was a time period where the U.S. did not engage at the council for about three and a half years, and a time period in which the United States did engage with the council with a full-time ambassador dedicated to the Human Rights Council for seven years, we can now compare and contrast the two as to where we get better outcomes with respect to our equities. And there's no question that with engagement, we get far better outcomes. Let's just take the issue of Israel, for example. Uh, as you know, one of the when, when there is a situation that arises and it's so dire, so significant of a human rights situation, the council has the ability to call a special session. Um, and this is, and I sort of see this as the heaviest medicine of the council. Uh, and in that first three and a half years with the U.S not fully engaged, there were six special sessions called on Israel. And in the subsequent seven years where you had a full-time ambassador in place, uh, there was one special session over seven years. So six in three and a half years and one in in seven years. So you can see just there on something that we care a lot about, um, which is the treatment of one of our close friends and allies uh, fairly. the, that uh, our, our presence there matters significantly, and it's sort of, and, and, and that's true across the board. I mean, if you look at things like emerging crisis in Burundi or uh, CAR, uh, Central African Republic, uh, the attention on Iran uh, or DPRK, across the board on these dire human rights situations, the U.S. presence has meant a significant more attention paid to some of these worst human rights abusers. So is is the argument for staying engaged then um, that even though this is an imperfect institution, that it does have this undue focus on Israel, which is something the U.S. you know has objected to since the outset, despite its flaws, though, that U.S. engagement at the Human Rights Council produces better outcomes than sort of staying outside the tent? Absolutely, and that I mean, and 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 look, it's not something. It's not. It's not a a light switch, right? It's not like U.S. engages and overnight it's, it becomes a perfect institution. But I think what the record demonstrates is that over time, working with key partners, uh, the ability of the United States to move the council in the right direction, so it is focusing on the right issues, so it is focusing on the right human rights. Uh, situations to try to change the political calculus on the ground in, in countries 
but you just get far better outcomes with U.S. engagement. Um, and uh, I think if we're ever going to get to a point where um, we we are uh, perfecting the institution, and that's you know quite a ways away, but doing far better than than we are. You know that is a process uh, by which we have made pro- progress, and which we will make continuing progress if we remain engaged. And I, my my concern is that the most likely outcome is if the Trump administration pulls out and disengages, that it'll sort of revert back to its pre-U.S. engagement norm, which was a council uh, that was closer uh, to looking like the commission than not. So it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the, Precisely. Yeah, Precisely. The, the, the U.S. pulls out because its membership is not in line with what it would want to be, its priorities are not with what it wants to be. And then once it leaves, its membership and its priorities become even more um, problematic for, for us interests. Um, yeah, exactly. Can, can you describe, so in your tenure, can you point to like one or two tangible real world outcomes that engagement at the, uh, human rights council produced or diplomacy sure. at the human rights council produced? I'll, I'll give you three that I think come to mind. Um, the first, and I think most obvious, is Sri Lanka. Uh, the United States led an effort working with the UK and other key partners to pass a series of resolutions and uh, ultimately establishing a investigation uh, by the High Commissioner of the end of the LTT conflict. This is the conflict, decade-long, decades-long conflict with the so-called Tamil Tigers, which is a terrorist organization as defined by the United States. Uh, and during the near the end of that conflict, the Sri Lankan government basically did a scorched earth thing uh, with mass atrocities, particularly in the northern Tamil-held areas of Sri Lanka. It refused to do any kind of investigation uh, into war crimes. Uh, we sought an investigation that investigation, just the mere presence of that investigation, was a bombshell in Sri Lankan politics. And Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was then the head of state, uh, lost an election, and his opponent, uh, then President Sirisena, uh, basically ran on a platform, among other things, of re-engagement with the international community, citing as his uh, main piece of evidence this in, this investigation by the UN, and so we can see in the, in that circumstance that if you want to improve human rights and you want to have countries take steps to redress, for example, war crimes, you know one way to do that is to increase the pressure, and that pressure can sometimes have the effect of fundamentally shifting the politics. Now, look, we're not Pollyannish about this. Sri Lanka is two steps forward, one step back. But in the Sri Lankan example, you can see that it did fundamentally. Uh, shift um, uh, the direction in which they were going. So the presence Under, of this external like commission of inquiry, I presume it was, or, or something like that, um, was uh, was enough to sway Sri Lankan politics. That's interesting. Yeah, and 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 I think that, and then Sirisena has been now committed to a process of accountability. And now there's some debate as how much of it should be domestic, how much of it should be international, but just the commitment made that was non-existent during the Rajapaksa regime. Rajapaksa had was you know uh, uh, closing space for civil society, uh, attacking the media. Uh, they were so burning there effigies of Ban Ki Moon, one of the most mild-mannered international diplomats in yeah, the world. Exactly. I remember like seeing pictures of effigies of him burning in Colombo, Sri Lanka at the time. 
Um, it's, it's hot politics in Shillong. So that's one example. Yeah. The, the second example I'd say is, is North Korea, where if you look what happened there, there was a commission of inquiry established by the Human Rights uh, Council, led by Justice Kirby, an Australian uh, former Supreme Court justice. Incredibly well done report, evidence-based, detailed, demonstrating chapter and verse all of the human rights violations uh, that uh, the North Koreans were, were taking. And now that hasn't led to changes on the ground, but what that has led to is a shift in the international debate regarding North Korea. After that report came out, China even, which would consistently defend the North Koreans, uh, hasn't done so anymore. Now, now what they say, they don't say they're not committing human rights violations. What they say is that our way of addressing that is the wrong way. That is an important shift. That is a discernible shift. Because uh, when you have a report with the UN imprimatur on it, for much of the world, the facts uh, set forth therein are critically important to what are the understood facts. And so in a case like North Korea, um, uh, that shift is discernible, demonstrable, and important. I, I should say that uh, point that you just made is a very, I think, important, and I've never heard it articulated in, in such a way, but it resonates with me, the idea that these facts that are contained in UN reports are like the facts, not like, you know, not facts that can be further debated. And you, you see that, I think, uh, manifest in, in, in the UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry on Syria. Area, where you have, um, even though they're unable to sway politics at all, as far as I can tell, they are creating this like fact base of the crimes that have been committed, um, which I think is an important historical document. Number one, number two, potentially, hopefully, will lead to some prosecutions down the road, even though it doesn't seem to have any near-term political impacts. That's exactly right, and I think I think you know they can have a multiplicity of purposes, and certainly accountability. One hopes that that's one of the uh, uh, one of the reasons or one of the outcomes. Another outcome is to sort of change the political calculus, as happened in Sri Lanka. Another outcome is to sort of change the conversation and put pressure. I am convinced that our special session uh, on Burundi, uh, along with activity in New York, um, right around December of 2015, um, if you look at the trajectory Burundi was on, they were fast moving towards uh, a kind of devolution and uh, more atrocities, and they pulled back from the brink. Um, now, it's, it's no perfect situation in Burundi, but from where they were and where they, are, they, they, were, uh, where they were before and where they were after, after the council's actions and the actions of uh, of others, um, uh, you can see a discernible change. Yeah, so that's I, that's what we try to do is identify those areas in which council action can change the trajectory, can uh, put in place a process that will lead to um, uh, a different outcome. That's interesting. I'm like something like that's a like a tertiary at best U.S. foreign policy priority, having a focus on Burundi. And I know that Ambassador Samantha Power visited like three times or something like that <laughs> to, to to the country to try to head off this this crisis. But you're saying that sort of focus on those under the radar issues are ways that the Human Rights Council has, you know, affected events on the ground. Exactly. And, and, you know, we see sometimes when the attention is either not sufficiently there uh, for all kinds of reasons, um, uh, then um, these situations tend to get worse. And I think uh, um, if you look at South Sudan, for example, and the delay of the international community to take forceful action, I think it was one of the reasons why it deteriorated further. Um, 
and, and my concern with this emerging crisis in Myanmar is that, you know, we're 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 watching uh, right before our eyes uh, ethnic cleansing in the making, and um, we just haven't, as an international community, taken the kinds of actions that will force uh, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's government to take a different course. So, if um, you know the Trump administration surprises us all and, and stays in the the Human Rights Council, I mean, do you see there a potential though? that the Trump you know, administration uses the Human Rights Council in ways not dissimilar to like, you know, a country like China uses it. I mean, Trump is not, you know, someone who has, you know, displayed an, an affection much for international human rights or human rights law. Um, so I guess one wonders if the council might be, you know, manipulated to suit illiberal ends uh, mm-hmm. if the U.S. stays stays on or alternatively is like the bureaucracy strong enough. Um, and are other members of, of the administration strong enough to kind of keep um, the U.S. maintaining its kind of traditional role on the Human Rights Council as a member that tries to put together coalitions to, to you know, to, to actually promote human rights and, and target human rights abusers? No, I, I think I think those fears are legitimate, um, though, you know, the record so far um, has been pretty good this past year in not shifting to, as you put it, uh, more illiberal kinds of ends. Uh, if you look at the statements by the U.S. mission in Geneva on the uh, various human rights circumstances around the world um, uh, after the high commissioner gave his his intervention, uh, his report. Um, They pointedly called out Egypt, pointedly called out uh, others, uh, Bahrain. And so at least so far that hasn't happened. And, 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 And I think if they do stay on, uh, you know, it seems it, it will also be dependent on how much uh, sway uh, Ambassador Haley will have, because yeah. it's been my sense that she's sort of a leading light on the human rights front. Um, I, I agree. In I the administration. Yeah. And, and it seems that she seems to be the one shaping policy here in, in, in an important way. So that, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I'd love to, to switch gears now and, and, and learn more about you and, and your background. I mean, you've been on my radar since you became a uh, U.S. ambassador to the Human Rights Council. I read all your press releases, followed you on Twitter and, and all that, but would love to learn more uh, about you and, and where you're from. So where are you from? Where were you born? So I was born in San Francisco, California. Um, my family is, uh, my dad's side is is Cherokee from Oklahoma, and he relocated to the Bay Area Met my mom, and that's where I grew up, and then uh, went on to Cal Berkeley, kind of locally, and uh, and then law school at NYU. So I uh, it was only my second time in New York when I went away for three years to law school. Uh, and so, uh, having you know grown up with a, a father who was Cherokee, I mean, so, so he grew up in in Oklahoma, and and remind listeners uh, that Cherokee Nation originally from southeast United States, but uh, you know, famously, you know, the Trail of Tears were marched to exactly. uh, to Oklahoma. Yeah, and you know, at bayonet uh, point, uh, marched from the regions that our people were originally from, which is sort of North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee, and, and <clears throat> marched um, in what is called the Trail of Tears to uh, what was then the Indian Territory, uh, now the state of Oklahoma, um, and most of the eastern parts of the state were than uh, Cherokee lands. Um, and then there was some chipping away of those on subsequent treaties. But uh, uh, so my dad, my dad grew up in Oklahoma, uh, 
my wife is actually from Oklahoma as well, from not not far from where uh, the capital of our tribe is, Tahlequah. Um, and I uh, still have a lot of family and friends out there. But uh, I myself grew up in, in San Francisco. Like, was I mean, was like the historical experience of, of the Cherokee Nation something that was discussed at, at home and like uh, was was kind of a part of your upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was always something that was was present, um, uh, and um, it was always something that was, in, in, you know, important. Uh, obviously, you know, not being at, in Oklahoma uh, permanently, uh, you know, it, it it is it is a little bit more challenging to keep those kinds of keep those kinds of ties. But uh, you know, we managed to do so, and. Um, and uh, so, uh, and, and also, the San Francisco Bay Area tends to have uh, uh, Indian folks, Native folks from a bunch of different tribes that were have relocated there. Uh, Why is fact, that? Uh, well, one of the reasons is that in the '50s there was a program called relocation. Um, some of my relatives participated in it, in which they moved uh, uh, Indian uh, folks from tribal lands into urban areas, and so. Southern California is one. Cleveland is one. Uh, what was the uh, what was like the the rationale? The rationale was to assimilate, um, and that if they uh, th- there were less economic opportunities out in these rural areas, and it would be better uh, to have uh, native folks be in urban areas where they can be uh, assimilated uh, in an easier way, and. Um, the interesting thing, the interesting outcome of that is that if you look at the red power movement that was in the late 60s, early 70s, this was a combination of those people who were in these urban areas who were looking at you know, African-Americans and Latinos and others seeking their uh, civil rights. Um, and they wanted to as well. And so then they got together with folks from uh, the reservation communities. And that is kind of how the kind of what's called the red power movement emerged. So it's a, it's an interesting outcome, uh, an unintended consequence, at least from the U S federal government's uh, perspective. What was, what was your like kind of interaction with, with the the red power movement at the time? I mean, I'm not quite sure how old you are. So like, how old would you have been at the time? So, so I was born in 66. So this, I was, I was pretty young when, when this stuff was happening. So I didn't really have a lot of, sense of it uh, at the time. I remember, you know, in high school and stuff later, um, going to Alcatraz, which had, which had been taken over back in the early 70s, and there were some ceremonies out there. So I remember doing that, yes, but I, I was not sort of... I interviewed uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant, who is a, an executive of the Skull Foundation, who delivered a child on Alcatraz as a young doctor, like Very supporting that movement. Yeah, and it, it was a takeover. I think it lasted maybe eight months or something. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And because the, the, the argument was that it was federally sur- federal surplus land that was no longer used, so it should revert back to tribal ownership. But in any event, the, the, the point was much more political than that, and that was just to say, you know, we have land rights, resource rights that have not been respected. And, and at the end of the day, it was important, this movement, to – be the basis, I think, of some political changes, including uh, the policy of self-determination adopted by Richard Nixon in the early seventies. So, uh, and and what like growing up, I mean, what what did your your parents do? 
so my dad was a salesman of, of various sorts, and uh, uh, then he and my mom split when we were, you know, relatively young still. And my mom worked at uh, um, my mom worked at a bank, um, and you know, one of the reasons why I have so much appreciated and wanted to serve this nation so much is because, you know, we had some struggles um, when I was young and there were times when, you know, we had to get on food stamps and things of that nature. Uh, and yet, you know, even for a kid that was kind of in the city with not a lot of economic opportunities, there were avenues uh, for me to you know, go go to college and avenues to go to law school and and sort of uh, uh, do something that I think was a positive. And I, and I really think that that those kinds of opportunities are things of what is what makes this nation uh, pretty exceptional. Um, and uh, to the extent that those opportunities are lessening as we uh, in our present reality, then I think that's a real cause for concern. So, so why why law? What what attracted you uh, to to study law? You know, it, that's a very interesting question. I think you know part of it was I was gra- I, I, I graduated in eighty uh, nine from Cal Berkeley, and it was a tough economy at the time. And you know, the the, the the my sense at the time was that if you're gonna if you don't know what to do, go to law school. <laughs> I think I think that's probably <laughs> still a lot of people's sense. Um, and so I I went to law school and you know applied for a few law schools. Uh, but what I'll the one thing I did taken the LSAT in a moment of weakness. <laughs> I think a lot of people had that moment of weakness, and of course I. Uh, but I, I will also say, look. I recognized once I got to law school that this was where I should be. Um, the, the, when I started studying law, it really everything kind of clicked. It just made sense to me in the sense that it made sense that this was something I wanted to do. Um, uh, and I, I, whether it's been in being a litigator or a judge or teaching law or you know uh, even in in diplomacy. And of course, as you know, in multilateral diplomacy, it's very legal in nature. Uh, whatever the particular role has been, I th- it's always been quite intriguing to me the how how rules are applied to particular situations. So, so what did you end up doing after law school? Like, how did you you get that that kind of first first uh, real job? Yeah, debts, so I, yeah. I I I worked for. A big law firm, Davis Polk and Wardwell, and then I did a judicial clerkship um, for a judge, uh, Lawrence Pierce, in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York City. And then uh, after that, I got what's called a Scadden Fellowship um, to join the Native American Rights Fund, which is principally kind of the, if you will, the LDF of of, of Indian country, and uh, spent uh, over 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 a decade um, at the Native American Rights Fund. I, I would love to to learn uh, about your work on on advocating and 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 um, you know being a lawyer on behalf of of Native American rights. But I'm wondering, sort of in in that period in in law school, I mean, you're in some very like I think elite circles. You're at like a a high end law firm. I have to imagine you're probably the only uh, Native American that you know, a lot <laughs> yeah. of these people have have encountered, right? Yeah, and it and it's and it's and it's tough because when you're when you're the only, then you feel like you're almost forced to speak for a community, even though you don't think you're equipped, you know, as a law student. Well, so how do you handle that? Like, like so. how do you handle that? I mean, that's that's like that 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 that's something that's common, I think, across a lot of minorities in these situations. But like, how did you deal with that? Well, I dealt with it a couple of ways. In some in some in some instances, I I chose not to speak um, because I didn't want it to be 
kind of, you know, I didn't want to throw out a thought out there that was then construed as the views of Indians. Um, in other cases, you know, I, I, I did try to measure my words um, and had to shift my speech to, so that I was engaging in a manner uh, that, um, that, 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 that I would be sure, um, would be helpful in whatever the dialogue was. And so I think it was a variety of circumstances, but it, it does weigh on you when you are the only one I was the only one in my law school, uh, uh at the time who was native, uh, and, an enrolled member of a fairly recognized tribe. And, um, and so, you know, you, you definitely have to kind of navigate that in a way that I think others others don't. I, mean, I remember there was a case in the property class called Johnson v. McIntosh, which is one of the early Indian law cases. And I specifically refrained not for, from not commenting on that because I felt um, that had I commented, um, it would have had uh, a bigger voice than I was prepared to provide at the time. And so that's, I mean, that's a detriment to your education, though. Yeah, I think I think it makes it more challenging. I think I think I think it's 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 tougher because um, you you can't you, you feel like you have to hesitate uh, and not explore ideas at least in a public way uh, all the time. But you know, look, it's it's for me. It was also uh, I was at this great institution. I was learning about an area, a subject area that I you know really loved. I got the chance to. Um, study under Thomas Frank, who was an international guru, international law guru. Um, and, uh, uh, and so it was, it, for me, it was all positive. Um, uh, but I do think that there is this tendency to self-regulate um, when you feel like uh, you're the only one that's representing a group. So, so when you got you this fellowship, you said it was the Skadden Fellowship that was a, essentially like a legal defense services for Native Americans? Well, so Skadden gave at the time, I don't know what they, what they do now, but they gave 25 um, fellowships a year. Uh, and it allows you to work with a nonprofit organization and basically work for them for two years while Skadden pays for your loans and gives you a, a salary. Um, and since I wanted to do Indian law, this was kind of a perfect opportunity for me to go to the Native American Rights Fund, uh, a position then once I was at the Native American Rights Fund opened up and then I joined uh, I joined, joined the organization on a more permanent basis. So what sort of cases again, were you working on and did you work on? Well, I did religious freedom cases, land cases, treaty-based cases, but the case that I worked most, most on uh, starting in 1996 was I represented a woman by the name of Eloise Cobell. Um, and a class of 500,000 individual Indians who had trust assets managed by the United States. And I should say mismanaged by the United States. So we brought a lawsuit for an accounting and to redress the mismanagement. Um, why why uh, was there forward. a trust account? So it's it's a it's a interesting it's an interesting question. So lands that are owned by Indians are considered held in trust by the United States for the benefit of the tribes. Uh, however, starting in 1887, uh, those lands were taken and divided up into little individual what's called allotments. But those allotments were still held in trust status. And so if you wanted to lease out your lands or you wanted to have an oil lease or gas lease or sell the timber on your land, the Department of Interior had to act as your trustee in in making those deals. 
and uh, and over time they really really badly mishandled um, their trust management obligations. Uh, so we brought this lawsuit. Like out of ignorance, or out I of think malice. a bit of both. Yeah, I think I think it was incompetence. There were a lot of you know kind of collusion for the benefit of both the. Indian agent and for the benefit of the uh, mineral extracting entity. Uh, So I think it was a, it was a, it was a bunch of things. Um, uh, but there was a lot of mismanagement. I remember there was an early report from 1915, congressional report that said, and the quote was, fraud, corruption, and institutional incompetence almost beyond the possibility of comprehension, end quote. Uh, so that gives you a sense of how bad the situation was. Um, so we litigated the case, and the good news is in 2010, um, we uh, settled uh, the matter for $3.4 billion for the class. It was the largest settlement against the United States in a class action. Wow. Um, and that those funds principally went to the, the, uh, the class members. So, so you, as a, a lawyer, um, won a, uh, a, a settlement against the Obama administration and then became an ambassador for the Obama administration, if, if I'm getting the dates correct. <laughs> There you go. That's you sued correct. your boss, and then he hired you. <laughs> well, he wasn't my boss yet. So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I worked on the, you know, on the on the campaign, yeah. but uh, in 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 07, 08, mm-hmm. um, But I also one of the reasons I did not go into the administration is because I wanted to make sure to see this um, this so, case to but, to an end. Three point four billion dollar class action settlement on behalf of Native Americans is that that's got to be like the is that one of the biggest ever, if not the biggest ever. It is the biggest ever, yes. And yes. and and the money went to f- about five hundred thousand people who had their land rights, you know, violated in in some way. Exactly, their land rights and and the 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 the, 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 the interior department also managed funds that belonged to these individuals and mismanaged those funds, lost those funds in some cases, and so uh, uh, there's a lack of records, so you don't know exactly who gets what dime. Um, but to the fullest extent possible, we try to make a, make people uh, uh, have a measure of justice. Well, I mean, I have to imagine this made you, in, in a sense, like a political figure in in the Native American community in in a way that maybe you didn't intend it at the start. I mean, if you won this sum for half a million people, there has to be some, um, you have to at that point have some sort of political juice too, I, I would imagine. No, I think I think it it did have the effect of you know elevating the profile, um, which is good and bad, uh, because no matter how good you think your your, your settlement is, there's always going to be people that think you could have got more money and uh, and and things of that nature. So uh, uh, yeah, no, I think I think it did open up um, to uh, uh, more more criticism and more positive things as well. Um, so how how did you and and President Obama, I guess, first you know meet, first get connected? How did you get connected to the to the campaign? Well, like most people, I watched the 2004 speech at the DNC, and uh, that definitely got me intrigued. Were you there in Boston? Uh, I was not there, but um, I, I watched it on TV, and I was like, and I had heard of this guy. I had named Barack Obama from friends in in Chicago, that he was a star, and um, and then the speech, and then uh, and then a little bit after that, in 2006, late 2006, I uh, I had a friend named Pete Rouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete had been uh, the chief of staff 
for then uh, Senate Minority Minority and Majority Leader uh, Tom Daschle. Um, and of course, uh, Senator Daschle lost in 2004, and so then after that, Pete ultimately joined uh, then Senator Obama. Uh, and he had asked me to brief uh, Senator Obama um, and others uh, on Native American policy. And so I ended up advising the campaign as its principal advisor on Native American policy. Um, what were some of what were some of like the, the, the advice that you were given? Like what would be like a good progressive Native American policy? So a lot of the, the a lot of what Indian country writ large wants uh, can be boiled down to something very specific. It's what's often referred to within Indian country as sovereignty, but it's basically the right to define for yourself your own future. So jurisdiction over your lands, jurisdiction over your people, jurisdiction over uh, things that occur, both regulatory jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction, civil jurisdiction. Uh, and um, because our history is one in which there have been there has been a tendency, a paternalistic tendency to make decisions for tribal communities. And so a lot of what tribes want is to change that and make sure that they're the driving force. Not that they're always going to make the best decisions, because no government ever always makes the best decisions, but in the aggregate, the outcomes are better for tribal communities if they themselves are making the decisions or guiding the policy. And so that is the, if you want to see the shift and why all across Indian country, President Obama is considered the most pro-tribal, pro-native president ever. It's because he shifted this in a dramatic way. Um, Through specific one like policies, yeah. Sorry, well, yeah. What, what's yeah. like a manifestation? So, well, one manifestation, yeah. One manifestation is the fact that every year he held the White House Tribal Nations Conference, and uh, this was a conference in which he participated in his entire cabinet, an all-day meeting, inviting tribes from all over the country uh, to come and spend a day discussing, in some cases, two days discussing what the agenda should be and prioritizing the agenda for the for the following year. And what this became is it became a driver of pro-tribal policy because every secretary, whether you were, you know, secretary of interior or attorney general, you wanted to announce some policy at the Tribal Nations Conference. And so it just fundamentally shifted the priority of native issues within the entire administration. Let me give you one example, which I think is a very telling example of how this works. Um, native women and girls are more likely to be victims of violent crime than any other racial gender category. Uh, you know, we oftentimes hear about black on black crime and, and Latino on Latino crime, things of that nature. Native American women more likely to be victims of violent crime than any other racial gender category. And the interesting thing is, is that for all other uh, women and girls, the most likely perpetrator is of their race. It's intra-racial. But for Native women, something like 70% of the perpetrators are non-Indian. Why is that? One of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is that tribes have jurisdiction in their tribal court to convict perpetrators who are Native. But they don't have jurisdiction to convict perpetrators who are non-Indian. 
And under the VAWA reauthorization of 2013, tribal courts were recognized to have that inherent authority, uh, again, a law that President Obama signed. Uh, and so now they can exercise jurisdiction over. So a guy comes off onto the reservation, you know, uh, uh, has uh, attacks a native woman uh, and, uh, violently. Well, he now can be p- prosecuted in tribal court. Hmm. Um, that's that, that's how, how you can empower the tribe to take care of its own issues, but we need federal engagement to make that happen. Uh, so obviously, you you uh, you know had had a, a Obama, then Senator Obama, soon to be President Obama's ear early on on the campaign. Um, how was was your first position in the administration as U.S. ambassador to the Human Rights Council? Uh, no, I, I um, the first thing I I was on the transition team, and then but then I did not join the administration, um, uh, in part because I you know again I had to res- deal with some ongoing litigation. Uh, later on, um, I joined I think it was 2011 the Commission on White House Fellows, um, and uh, that was a, that's a great institution. Um, you get these exceptional young Americans. Um, uh, they 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 make you wonder like what did I do in my twenties and thirties? Yeah, I know I I, I know, you know a couple <laughs> of them. I, I got the same feeling. <laughs> and uh, uh, so so we're you know uh, we get to interview and then have a process by which we recommend to the president uh, who he selects as his fellows. And so that was incredibly uh, fr- uh, fruitful uh, because it it just it just it made you have a lot of hope in the future dealing with these. Uh, exceptional young Americans. So how did you then come to learn that you were to be nominated as ambassador to the Human Rights Council? Yeah, well, you know, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I gave them some some suggestions uh, about things that I would be interested in doing in the second term. Um, And then kind of threw out some things and kind of had a conversation, and then ultimately they put this on the table. And... um, you know, for me, it was bringing bring two things that I cared a lot about uh, coming out of law school. You know, I was an international law fellow at NYU, um, but I also had this deep interest in Indian law. And so now, you know, and then I went to practice law for, you know, two decades and was able to exercise the interests um, regarding, regarding Indian law. But I really wasn't able to fully exercise uh, and get involved in issues that I care deeply about on foreign policy and national security and human rights and things of that nature. I did some work uh, on indigenous people's rights, but I hadn't been able to fully engage. And so this was just an incredible opportunity to you know, represent a nation that I wanted to contribute to, represent a president who I you know, care deeply about and think is, uh, was an incredible voice. Um, and also work on issues that were fascinating. Um, I'm also, by nature, a bit of an institutionalist, and so the kind of challenges regarding the Human Rights Council and sort of try to point it in the right direction, trying to address some of its flaws, uh, was also quite attractive to me. So in, in, in your time as uh, ambassador there, I mean, in what ways can you identify either your experience practicing Native American law or your you know experience as an individual Native American affect affected your uh, ability to conduct diplomacy or influenced your 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 uh your work in one way or the other it's a it's a great question i think that um one thing that i think is helpful is you know try pe- people around the world 
many people, particularly in places like Africa and Asia, are tribal people. Um, and if they understand that you're also a tribal person, you know, the Botswanan ambassador, you know, he's going to know who, what tribe he comes from, and he's going to understand, you know, tribal relations. And so having that understanding allows you to sort of connect on a level, I think, that is uh, advantageous. Well, can you um, point to a specific example where, where that, that happened? Well, I think it's just a general sort of sense. I mean, I no, I I just remember, you know, I was I was in a room talking to a, a number of my colleagues from Africa, about four or five, I think. Uh, I don't remember this who all was there, but um, I do remember we got on the topic of, you know, oh, you're the first Native uh, American uh, U.S. ambassador, and. Uh, that was interesting to them. And, you know, I told, told them about my tribe and, you know, our, our, our language and it's how it's written. And we just had this conversation about the Cherokee Nation. And then they would tell me about theirs um, and their tribal affiliations. Uh, and it just allowed us to have a conversation that was not specific on any matter that was before us, but it drew us closer. Um, because they don't normally see that in a United States representative. And so I do think that that aids to, uh, to, 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 to have inroads. I think also working with tribes, um, you know, you have a sense of uh, when the U.S., uh, it, it's felt um, as if the U.S. has been sort of paternalistic. Uh, and it gave you, it, it, at least it counseled me to avoid um, uh, falling into that trap with other nations uh, because I know how uh, it uh, feels when you're on the sort of receiving end of that. And so it allows, you know, you, you still advocate with, uh, you, you advocate robustly the positions of your of your government, of course, and you try to achieve the objectives uh, of the role in which you're in. Um, but it gives you a, a sensibility of uh, in what way to present those issues uh, to others. Well, and I think you're probably also making an argument for you know more diversity in in, in sort of U.S. foreign policy, and in particular in, in sort of um, you know proactively trying to recruit more Native Americans into. Uh, you know, the foreign service, you know, if the foreign service were hiring these days, <laughs> uh, which, which they're not, um, because, you know, you, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you're the, the first Native American U.S. ambassador, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of astonishing, um, that that happened in what, 2013? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is astonishing. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, a little late. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm hoping that there will be others that will, uh, follow in, Why the underrepresentation, though, do you think? Well, you know, I think part of it is just, you know, geography. Um, part of it is, uh, if you asked, if you asked all the young people, if you asked a hundred twenty-year-olds in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, what is a foreign service officer and what do they do? You'd be lucky if you got one or two people that knew, right? So. I think part of it is that there's just a lack of knowledge, um, and we've got to do better. State Department has to do better. The United States has to do better in making sure that we're draw drawing from a diver diverse set of um, communities. I don't think it's just natives 
though, either. I think that you know you're gonna you tend to have overrepresentation from the coast in the State Department, um, and I think that's just a function of uh, who knows about what's going on. But I I think I do think it makes us. Uh, it would make us stronger if we had uh, a greater outreach, because I think that that kind of diversity would bring, um, uh, you know, would give you a, a, a availability of different tools because di- different people come from from different communities, and I think can can be more effective uh, in co- collaborating with one another uh, if, if they if they if you had that kind of diversity. I would I would say that you know, on the on the other hand, I I do want to point out that. Of the four U.S. ambassadors in Geneva, um, we had an Asian American, an African American, a Native American, and and, and a White American. Uh, and if you look at all the other delegations and their ambassadors, you didn't have that kind of diversity. Uh, so I I also want to make it clear that you know at least in the Obama administration there was a on the ambassador level there was an intention intentionality. Uh, to ensure that we had diversity, on, at least uh, in the ambassadorial corps. So, so you arrived in 2013 or 2014, right? In, 2014. In 2014, yeah. and you stayed through the duration of, of the Obama administration. Can you point in our, in our last minute or two to like one highlight? I, I know you mentioned a few important um, ways in which the Security count, the Human Rights Council um, you know, affected events on the grounds anywhere, but do you have like a personal highlight that you could uh, share? If I can take the liberty of mentioning two, I'll yeah, try please. to be quick. No, quickly. no, no. The I have first... as much time as you want. That's, that's fine. <laughs> the, I don't get paid by the I'll... hour like you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the first one is, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we I think we did a lot of good work on highlighting violence against indigenous women and girls because we have a huge problem here in the United States. Mm-hmm. But so does Canada and so yeah. does Mexico and so does Australia and so does most of Latin America. There's this international scourge on violence against indigenous women and girls. And I think what one of the things we did is kind of utilize the auspices of the Human Rights Council to focus more on so we can identify best practices, identify things that aren't working, identify how you can fix, uh, uh, put in place policies that will um, uh, address in a more effective way this uh, scourge of violence. So that's one um, that uh, kind of grew out of work I cared about um, working with tribal communities in the United States. And the second one is um, uh, what we call the SOGI resolution. Um, there was two SOGI resolutions passed under uh, during my tenure. The, it's sexual orientation and gender identity. This is highly, highly contentious because this is basically the human rights of LGBTI persons. Um, and we passed two resolutions. The second one establishing for the first time an independent expert on uh, violence and discrimination against LGBTI persons. Um, And that is going to matter. That is going to elevate a conversation about a group of people. And that was a contentious debate, I should say. I followed it at the time. You had a number of religiously conservative countries uh, in Africa and in the Middle East and and elsewhere that, that vigorously opposed this. Yes, it, it was by far the most contentious debate um, that I had during my tenure, especially when we were trying to establish the independent expert. And then even after establishing it, there was a challenge to us to appointment of the independent expert. And then it went to New York, and I think there was a vote in the General Assembly, uh, vote in the Third Committee, vote in the General Assembly, uh, challenge in the Fifth Committee. So 
Yes, there are a series of countries that are, were profoundly antagonistic to to this. But what happens with these situations is that you establish the, the, the precedent, you establish the independent expert, and it's very difficult to make that initial breach. But the next time you do it, it's a little bit easier. Uh, and I think we owe it to the uh, people of the LGBTI communities to stand with them and say, look, you know, nobody should have to face discrimination. Nobody should have to face violence for who they are. And that's a sort of simple proposition that we try to assert here. I should also add that, you know, this would not have happened, the entire uh, LGBTI protections debate, without our really close collaboration with our friends in Latin America um, who worked diligently at all stages and were super effective um, in, in, in achieving these aims. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Latin America has always been, particularly Brazil, has been a, a key exporter of LGBT rights uh, and, and ideas around the world. Yep. Um, they, they, they played a critical role, no doubt about it. Well, well Ambassador, uh, thank you so much for your time. Anything else you want to plug, highlight before before you go? No, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks thank for you. Thanks for having me on. I, I, and, I really uh, appreciate look, it. Yep. Look forward to continuing to, 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 to listen and, and read your stuff. Okay. Thank you, Ambassador. Okay. Thank you. Yep. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Harper. That was great. And thank you for being a listener. And if you are a premium supporter of the show, thank you for your support. If you're not, please do become one so you can support this great content. You know, it does not come free. It does not come easy. I require on listeners to pick up a, a good bit of the slack. I have no advertiser this month, so this is even more important that you step up and become a premium supporter, subscriber to the show. Support the show on Patreon, and you will get a number of excellent and rewarding rewards in return. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being a premium subscriber, and we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.